I'm Charlie. I'm Joseph. And I'm Spencer. Welcome back to the church closet. It feels good to be back, doesn't it? Sure. <laughs> no, yes, yes. If you're not excited to be here, Charlie. You don't have you to can, be. You could just leave, you know. We you got may this. have started this, but we're okay. <laughs> I can leave the closet. That's a choice now. Always was. You decide when you can come out and who you tell. We've said that in the first season, but now it's season two. Ooh. Spencer? Season two, baby. Uh, we're fully out of the closet now. We'll probably have to come up with a subtitle. On today's episode, we're discussing the question of events, thoughts, or experiences from growing up that may have shaped our sexuality. It's worth mentioning ahead of time that some of this discussion will involve the topic of sexual abuse. If you need to skip this episode, that's fine. We try to handle these things sensitively, but it's also something that needs to be brought up and discussed because it pertains to so many people who deal with same-sex attraction, while also dealing a lot with people who don't experience same-sex attraction. It is a risky discussion, but it is also an important one that we're going to try to treat professionally, ethically, and well. Joseph, how did you become gay? I wish I knew. <laughs> Like, we've mentioned it some, but not really to this extent that this episode's going to cover. We don't know what makes us gay. Some say you're born that way, some say you choose it, some say it's a mixture of both. For us, we can only go through our experiences, through thoughts, through deeds, other things that may have made us more aware of our sexual orientation. For me, I can think of a few things that started in pre-adolescence, you know, before puberty, for those that don't know that. And I can think back to a specific example around age six, seven, something like that, um, where me and some friends we would go into a closet, ironically enough, and we would showcase each other. I guess that's the more polite way of saying it. Um, because we always had a rule there that some parents put up saying boys can look at boys, girls can look at girls, but boys can't look at girls. And so we took that to heart. But as kids are, we're curious. And so while this is not always sexual abuse related, it can be. Um, some kids do try to go through therapy themselves or try to process what they have seen with other kids in play. And that can be represented represented in this. Uh, however, I don't think that's what was happening with me and my friends. I think we just took the rule of boys can look at boys, girls can look at girls, and but boys can't look at girls too seriously. <laughs> and so we became curious about bodies because, I mean, that's we're kids. We're supposed to be curious and we're supposed to learn things. And so we took it upon ourselves. I can remember that and I still have flashbacks to this day, which is why I bring it up. Um, I still have vivid memories of it. We can fast forward to around like age nine when I finally like realized I actually do kind of like guys, you know, like this is still early on puberty. So I was still trying to figure out what attraction was, period. Um, but like I knew there wasn't too much of a separation between guys and girls. Going fast forward even more for puberty, you know, all the fun stuff happens and the attraction actually starts to kick up and that's when... I started to have more attraction towards guys, and I tried to talk to people about it. 
um, when I was a little bit older, around 16 or so. And they would pray for me. And then there was one time at a D-Now where I had somebody pray for me. And like I had scratched my neck and it had become red. <laughs> and I laughed because when they were done praying, they saw the red mark on my neck. And I was, and they were like, was that there before? I went, no, because I didn't realize a correlation of I scratched my neck, therefore it's red. <laughs> and they're like, well, I think it worked. I went, okay. Yeah. So, you know, thought I was okay and then went on and like literally the next week, no. Um, and so it was very difficult of going to same-sex camps, how to make boundaries and stuff, which we'll talk about in the next episode and whatnot. Later on in life, I, you know, we had the coming out extravaganza episodes and when I finally came out in my second period English class, it's my senior year of high school, you know, it spread around the school pretty fast. And so I felt more confident. I felt more like myself. So that's how I became more of, okay, yeah, I really am this. Whereas before I was still questioning myself, still like, well, I can't, like guys, I still quote unquote believe God. If he loved me, he wouldn't make me go through this. I'm still questioning, still pondering that thing. And then when I finally came out, it was more freedom to be myself. And that really shaped who I've become today, even though I've changed my views on a little bit of it. And I've started to follow Christ more than I did back then. Those thoughts, those feelings, those activities, those are the things that shaped my sexuality. Jumping in, elaborating on some of what you said, like particular with the childhood events, a lot of kids, well, all kids are curious. What kids do with their curiosity varies from child to child, but it is, I don't think it is an uncommon thing for children to have curiosity about each other's bodies. What happens with that curiosity does matter. So if parents can be involved there, try to be involved there. There's not a black and white, oh, if this has only happened, Joseph wouldn't have same-sex attraction. If anything, it's a part. At least, the very least, it's a memory. But it's not so black and white as to say that if that thing hadn't happened, everything about his life would have changed. And then, on the possibility for sexual abuse front, what Joseph has shared, nothing of it indicates, or at least directly indicates that there was any sexual abuse that had happened, but I wanted to elaborate that if a child is abused, something that often happens is that they process it through their play. And so what happens between them and the adult figure, they may recreate with their peers. And it is not healthy for them to do this, but it's the best that they as children know how. So if you recognize those tendencies in your child, ask them questions. If it's beyond your depth, ask a pastor. Often it's good to ask a therapist Ask someone who knows how to talk to your child about sexual abuse in a way that 
the child can understand and gives the child the opportunity to speak about what happened. Oh, there are so many different reasons to bring this up. But abuse is very common in people who have same-sex attraction. It is not the only reason that people develop same-sex attraction. It is not an 100% correlation that people who have same-sex attraction were abused or that if people are abused, they will experience same-sex attraction. It's not 100% in either of those categories. For example, I don't, to the best of my knowledge, I have no reason to believe that I was abused growing up in any form or fashion, physically, sexually, emotionally. My life had normal ups and downs, but I still experienced same-sex attraction. And so be careful with the generalization that people with same-sex attraction were abused, because that's assuming a lot. And until you know someone well enough that they would choose to open up to you, don't act on an assumption that they have experienced abuse. One way to prevent child sexual abuse, that isn't the topic of this episode, but it's something I desperately want people to know, is that if a child knows what a penis is and what a vagina is, especially a boy knowing penis and a girl knowing vagina, then they have the words to describe what is happening to them. Abusers use cute, childish, fake terms to describe genitalia and parts of the body so that if the kid does talk about it, they'll use those words and not ones that explicitly communicate what happened. And while it is uncomfortable hearing a five or six-year-old say penis, say vagina, we should not be afraid of that as much as sexual abusers are afraid of a child having the words to defend themselves. Because nothing will be more terrifying to an abuser than a child who will spill the beans, who will get them caught, who will say exactly what happened to an adult who will believe them. So if you want to protect your children, the first line of defense is knowing the words to describe their bodies so that they can stay safe. It is unfortunate how many people, whenever you're asking them about their earlier sexual experiences, when you ask them, you know, what shaped your sexuality, they have to go to sexual abuse. It's common. It's so common, and it is just a terrible way for someone to be introduced to the good gift of healthy sexuality. And I think the church has woken up a lot to how it can happen within the church, the dire consequences, um, the need to keep children safe. Obviously, not everyone is we're not going to be able to keep every kid safe. But as a, as a unit, as a group, the, the church just has to be aware and awake to that. And people who have been sexually abused shouldn't be shamed or thought of as perpetrators waiting to happen. This is a really, a really dangerous line of thought that I think the church kind of has accidentally stumbled into. When you're trying to win a kind of culture war and paint homosexuality as the enemy, for a long time in pop culture, particularly in religious circles, um, a lot was made of the relationships between being gay and having been sexually abused, painting people who are gay as potential abusers, abusers waiting to happen, 
And we know, like, just numerically, if you do good enough studies, you figure out that's not true. And it's not something that you have to infer from the Bible either. For those of you out there that are gay, there's no reason to heap shame on you. For anyone who's a victim of sexual abuse, regardless of what role you think it played in your life, I don't want to shame you for something you think is your fault, because something like that is not your fault. And I don't want to make you out to be just a, a helpless victim in the process of developing your own sexuality. There's more to your story, more to everyone's story, than just the things that were done to them. Like Joseph was saying, there's the choices we make, the experiences we have, and there's our relationship with God and with others. Healing is just as much a part of everyone's story as the things that were done to us uh, along the way. When we talk about what causes, what makes someone gay? Complicated question. I think we've come a long way on this, both as a church and just scientifically. It's a question you can investigate biologically and psychologically. Um, I think we have come quite a ways on this, and hopefully we can set aside the need to score points and have kind of a definition of what makes people gay that makes our political points look better. For a long time, the church uh, had to assert, essentially, to support its arguments, uh, had to assert that people chose to be gay because it makes it feel more like a sin, I guess, uh, if you say that it's a primarily a choice. Or even arguments about family structure. You know, if you don't have a dad, then that's what makes you gay. Or if you have a bad relationship with your dad. Whereas people who are arguing for a more progressive outlook on homosexuality or uh, even just civil rights activists argued that, no, it's not a choice. You're totally born that way. These are positions designed to score points, um, which means they don't reflect reality particularly well. The best answer you can give for the best answer I can give for what makes someone gay is, I don't know, significant genetic component, significant impact of early childhood, not totally set in stone. Uh, any good answer to that question isn't going to be particularly simple, and it isn't going to line up perfectly with an ideological take on, here's what causes people to be homosexual, and here's why that supports my idea of how the world works. For me, it's still tied up in the I don't know, but... One of the reasons why we're elaborating on this question is we want people to have permission to think about their own histories and understand the histories of others so that, it, I mean, if we can help figure out what causes it and prevent it, great. But at the same time, people are going to struggle with sin. And if it's not same-sex attraction, it can be so many other things. So don't put all your stock in not being gay. And forget that we all need Jesus desperately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, I don't feel like my experiences started as early as with Joseph. It started more around the time that I learned to be self-conscious about my body. For no reason. There's a meme I see that I tend to agree with. Oh, to be as skinny as I was when I first thought that I was fat. I'm fatter than I was when I first thought that I was fat, but I'm more okay with that now. And the parts of myself that I told myself lies about, essentially, I was willing to believe the lie that I should look better or that I should feel ashamed that, or at least like that I should be embarrassed about different parts of my body. And those were, those in general tended to be the parts of the body I became most attracted to. 
So that shame in myself led to curiosity about others, led to gluttony over that curiosity, which led to lust. Hopefully that journey makes some sense. And it's also meant that part of my experience de dealing with homosexual attraction, the main way we think of same-sex attraction and gayness is that it is specifically attraction for the same sex, which is, of course, a major component. But it isn't just how you view the same sex. It is also how you want to be viewed by the same sex. Heterosexual men want to be good-looking in general. The people they most want to find them attractive are heterosexual women. Those are the people they are trying to impress. Those are the people they are mindful, most mindful about what their bodies look like to them. And I think, I don't have research for this one. It hasn't really been talked about in my experience, but one of the things I think we forget about the same-sex experience is that we want to be viewed a certain way by other guys. And as I get older, it's easier to not care as much. And honestly, I feel a lot more relief from that. Like it is a burden being lifted from my shoulders to gain that old man confidence that it's just my body. And if it's in the locker room, it's not for, it's not to look pretty. It's not to scandalize. It is to change clothes. Whoever's traumatized along the way. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, don't worry, Charlie. You are overflowing with old man confidence. What? <laughs> Oh boy, special sentences, special topics that we did not quite plan on delving into. Anywho, <laughs> but I know for me, that probably started at least as early as my attraction for guys, concern about how other guys would view me. And that still hasn't gone away. And I still don't completely know what to do with it other than don't live in the fear of what I look like. Don't live in the shame that I'm not enough. Because the honest reality is most of the time they don't care and i am putting 110 percent of my thought and effort into controlling something that doesn't need any thought or control because they don't care so i do my best to not live in the shame and while i have to be mindful to not care to act as is appropriate for whatever setting i'm in i am mostly able to hopefully that makes sense yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. It's fascinating, the relationship between those kind of idiosyncratic bits. Like you said, the stuff that you were insecure about yourself was the stuff that you you sought out or were curious about looking at other guys. I don't know, there's, there's so much unique in each person's development. Like, you're just figuring it out. I, I was so petrified of everything when I was figuring out sex and sexuality and attraction. Um, it really snuck up on me. Um... It was scary. It was scary understanding that I was now attracted to things and trying to sort out what those things were and what to do about it. It's tough. It's so tough um, for everybody. So it's not just a something that you people get to yourselves. <laughs> what do you mean, you people? Okay. Uh, you know what I mean, you people. <laughs> it was frightening. Um, and I, you, you remember going back. Um, particularly as you reflect on your early sexual experiences and you think, okay, what did I do wrong? 
how did I mess myself up? How did other people mess me up? How did my experiences? And you can get stuck in that trying to find an explanation. If you if you just cycle around trying over and over again to think, okay, what did I do wrong? What should I be ashamed of? How did I ruin my sexuality? That's not a healthy place to be. It's a temptation. It's, it's a temptation I have, and I didn't turn out gay. Like, I turned out with regrets around my sexuality. And me endlessly cycling around my earliest memories of attraction and trying to figure myself out, I should have my eyes on Jesus. I should have my eyes on who I want to be and who I want to be transformed into. I can go so far. I think it's useful, obviously, as we're doing now to reflect back on um, what the what our early influences were, what we know about ourselves, to understand ourselves. But at some point, we are mysterious, or just utterly, deeply mysterious to ourselves at the same time. And sometimes it's best to look into the future instead of getting stuck in the uh, the revolving door of self-reflection. And as kids are learning about their sexuality and first experiencing sexual attraction, we all know it's awkward. None of us want to go back to that time. <laughs> but we need to be willing to go back at least as far as being able to talk about it to kids who are going through that development. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to meet them where they are at instead of expecting them to meet us where we are at. They are new. It's scary. Their body feels things that they couldn't fathom before. I don't remember exactly what it was like to not have sexual attraction. I just sort of miss that simplicity. Oh, I miss that simplicity yeah. so much. Yeah. But be willing to meet them there and... Give them guidance. Help them with their curiosity. Help them with their questions. It can do them so much good, particularly because we want them to turn to their parents, their teachers. We want them to turn to wise Christian individuals because the sex life shapes so much of people's futures, their presence and their futures. Whether it's just how much time they're wasting on sexual activities. Um, porn feels like a waste of time when you view it the way it is. It is just, it doesn't accomplish anything and it often stands in the way of actual productivity. So it's at least a time waster. It keeps people from thinking about healthy things or better things. It is a distraction from knowing God and it gives so much guilt and shame. So we want them turning to adults during their t most vulnerable times, adults who are trustworthy and will take care of them so that they don't turn to the internet because it's natural that kids want and need answers, but I don't want those answers to come from pornography. Pornography, when viewed by a 12-year-old, is sexual abuse. That the child should not have access to. You talked about shame on this episode, and shame is a very powerful tool. A tool that is used by abusers, a tool that is used by ourselves against ourselves. It is something that can be used so that you can go back and process through things. However, when you do go back, when you reflect back, don't stay. Because while the past is there for you to learn from your mistakes, and it is there because it is 
It has made you the person that you are. It is called the past for a reason. Many things are hard to forget. Like I said, I am now 23. I'm still remembering things from when I was six. It can be hard to forget, but don't let it control you. Meet those people where they are. Reflect back to where you were so you can give them guidance to help them progress themselves into a better place than where you were in that age. But do not stay. Because if you stay, that shame will rise up and put you back. And it wouldn't make you lose all the progress that you have, but it will tell you that you did. You have still made progress. You are still loved. You are still a new person. But that shame, that shame is powerful. So reflect back, help others, but don't stay there. I feel like from the title of this episode, we kind of insinuated we were going to explain why, what causes same-sex attraction so sorry if you were came into this episode expecting us to do that we'll let you know when we figure it out yeah yeah we'll we'll publish something in a very well-respected scientific journal when we figure that out obviously like we've said the process of, of reflecting on it is useful both individually and to kind of break people's expectations i think people who haven't had a lot of time to think about this or even people just who same-sex attracted have this stereotype of like yeah you're gay because you have a bad relationship with your father or you uh, aren't very much of a man. You don't have enough testosterone. You want to be a woman. Uh, you were sexually abused. Um, we have these easy answers that are in like intuitively, depending on what your worldview is, they just kind of make sense. And if you give someone kind of a good enough explanation, then they won't really probe into it. When you get into individual cases and you see exceptions, whenever you talk to people who have same-sex attraction, like, yeah, sure, but that's not me. That didn't happen to me. Your pet theory about what makes people gay doesn't fit me. So breaking open people's preconceptions, I think, is pretty useful whenever you start to hear people's stories in this area. I just thought that ought to be said. Whatever your vision is, whatever your model of how sexuality develops, it's probably a little bit too simple. I will say on the other side, really hardline essentialists about sexual orientation, people who say that um, you're just born however you're born and there's nothing you can do to change it. It's difficult to change, but anyone who's done any kind of empirical work in the area knows that it does change. People do go, usually not radically, but people's self-identification of what they're attracted to does tend to change over time, even if it's just in small increments. So we you know, don't fall for a simple story there. And of those kind of two spectrums, the kind that says or the total, oh, you choose to be gay versus there's nothing you can do about it. The narrative surrounding you choose to be gay is often one that is deeply shameful, and the narrative around there's nothing you can do about your sexuality can be kind of disempowering to people, but uh, accept the world as it is and strive towards the kind of person you want to be. And one perspective that Christians should take is that we worship the God who brings the resurrection from the dead. If I go talk to a corpse... I'm talking to a dead body, it stays in the ground, hopefully buried, and where I can't smell it. If God so commands a corpse, it is rising from the ground with new life. Something that I could not do is happening because God can do it. Our hope is in a God who raised Jesus from the dead when he should have remained dead. We will follow in his footsteps and we ourselves will rise from the dead. And so we live in the hope that our sin does not come with us. And we bring the kingdom now 
by living as free from sin as we are able, not being chained to what Satan chains us to, but living in the freedom that can only come through Christ. And as I deal with temptation, I don't shackle myself back into those chains. I don't have to be a slave to sin. That is my choice. I don't choose my temptation, but I do choose to live by faith and to take what God has done for me. Thanks for joining us on the first episode of the second season of The Church Closet. We've got a lot planned for you this season, all kinds of questions, planning to bring in a few guests, delve deeper into some familiar topics, and introduce brand new ones. We're definitely not out of things to talk about, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the upcoming weeks. Until then, stay safe. Bye. (laughs) Usually you say we love you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we do love you. (laughs) Goodbye, and we love you. (laughs) We'll see y'all later. (laughs) 